Heavenly Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. <laughs> you beat me to it. Amen. Oh, now let's move on. No, that's not what he meant. Um, well, it's great to see you guys here. You know, uh, last week, I, I used the board up here, and I drew, and I did all this kind of stuff, and I realized that there's a lot of people that probably can't even see what I'm doing up here, and even those who can see probably wish they didn't see me drawing. Um, so instead, I try to make some graphics uh, that I'm going to show on the screen to kind of get you an idea of, of this Kingdom series. It was kind of fun because right after I finished preaching on Sunday, Caden Chapel, I'm going to use you because I didn't even talk to you about this, but we went up to Sunday school, and he's like, that was a great message. So I felt a lot better about myself after that. But he really appreciated uh, the content, I think. And just, you know, he's, he was like, what, what, what is this stuff? How does this kingdom of God stuff work? And little did he know, or maybe he didn't know, we're going to do this for a couple more weeks, um, talking about the kingdom of God, what it means. And I got one of these. Um, and how it works in our lives and in this world. Last week, I, I drew, does anybody know what kind of diagram I drew? A Venn diagram. Do we know why we, why we call it Venn? Some guy named Venny invented it. That was a dad pun. Sorry about that. It's terrible. <laughs> My dad doesn't do puns like that, but apparently I do. Uh, it was a Venn diagram. It shows a little bit about what's going on. And the first thing that I showed was that there's this, um, it should change, Lord willing. Go ahead and change the next one there, Ben. That there's heaven and there's earth. And when you read Genesis chapter 1, 1, it says, and the begin, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And when we read that, we're like, oh, okay, he created everything. And then you keep reading and you realize, no, he hasn't created everything. That's like a summary statement. And in fact, in Genesis chapter 1, it's a poem. It's a poem. It's not a science textbook. It's not trying to tell you how God did it. It's not trying to tell you the order in which he did it necessarily. And, and, and I'm not trying to upset people by saying that, but there's, there's different things that are going on in Genesis chapter one. For instance, we are never told that God created water in Genesis chapter one. It just says God's spirit hovered over the waters in, in verse two. And it's like, okay, he's hovering over water, but it never said he created water. And that should clue you into this is trying to do something other than explain how we got here. Now, part of what it's doing is explaining how we got here. So don't misunderstand me. It's explaining that, but it's also a polemic against other religions in the ancient world. Other religions in the ancient world, one of the things that they did was they saw that the, there was evil in the world and there was good in the world. And so they were busy trying to explain why is there both evil and good in the world? Because if there's evil and good in the world, what does that mean about us? What does that mean about the creator of this world? What does that mean about all these sorts of things? So the ancient peoples, one of the religions that was uh, adhered to by a lot of people, they worshiped the god Baal. And if you read the Old Testament, you'll come across his name quite a few times because he was worshiped by the people that would just live north of the kingdom of Israel in a kingdom called Ugarit. And the people in Ugarit... They worshiped the king or the, the god Baal, and they also worshiped another god named El. And these gods, it was believed, created the world, but they created it very differently. They didn't create it 
out of nothing. They didn't create it by speaking. They created it through warfare. So El destroyed an evil God and used the body parts of the evil God to make the world. And that's why there's evil in the world. But there's also good in the world because El was the one that tore the body apart and made all the the world. So that is partly what's going on in Genesis 1.1. But one of the questions, one of the issues that Genesis is trying to argue for us is, why is there good and evil in this world? Why is the world the way it is? It's, It's actually not trying to be a science text. It's trying to be a theological text. Is trying to answer some theological questions. So when we come to the Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2, the questions in the forefront of our mind should be these. How is the world the way it is? Why is the world the way it is? Is God good? Is the world good? Was it created good? You see, if you look for those kind of answers, guess what? Or if you ask those kinds of questions, you're going to find those answers. So many times in Genesis chapter 1, it says what after God created something? It was good. It was good. I mean, like, you can kind of outline the passage by just looking for each time it says, it was evening, it was morning, it was a day, it was good, right? You can look for those, and that's a memory technique that the Hebrews used when they talked about poetry and they wrote poems, and that's a technique so people like kids could remember the story. So we have this story, and it says, it was good, 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 it was good. Now, Hebrew has a word for perfect, and the Hebrew doesn't use that word. Hebrew has a word for excellent or great, and the Hebrew doesn't use that word. The Hebrew uses the word good. Now, I'm not trying to put down what God made, but one of the jobs he gave us was to take Eden everywhere in the world. Now, we know Eden wasn't everywhere in the world because it was a place that had borders, It was bordered by four rivers. And so the whole world, in fact, another way we know that all the world wasn't Eden was what happened to Adam and Eve after they sinned. They were sent packing out of the garden of Eden. If the whole world's Eden, how do they get sent packing to someplace that wasn't Eden? So the whole world was not Eden. And what God told Adam and Eve to do was go and garden. Go and make babies and go and garden. That's what God's commandment to Adam and Eve was, was to multiply and to rule the earth. Now, the idea that God had in mind was that they would go throughout the world and they would bring heaven more and more into the earth. That heaven would eventually overlap the entire earth. That they would be the same. And the idea there is that God would rule and reign completely and totally, both the heavens and the earth. And they had a choice. We'll get to that in a bit. One of the things that we see here is that there are different words that the Bible uses uh, for heaven and earth. And so it uses, about the earth, it uses the word the world. You see that in John three sixteen. God so loved the world. 
Um, you see it all over the, John's writings in the Gospel of John. It also has the word the present age. You also have a bummer statement, the age of sin and death is a, is a use, is a phrase that's used to refer to the earth. And the kingdom of God is used as a synonym for heaven. So actually, in Matthew, you read that um, the meek shall inherit the earth, right? You read all these things about the meek shall inherit the kingdom. You read all these things about blessed are those, for they shall inherit. And the words that Matthew uses are the kingdom of heaven. He puts in Jesus' mouth, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. And the other, the other gospels say the kingdom of God is near. And we need to read the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God as synonyms. They're the same. They're being used to describe the same thing. And what are they being used to describe? They're being used to describe God's rule and reign, where God rules and reigns. Uh, We also have the word eternal life or abundant life. And those are terms that are used for God's rule and reign, this place that we think of and call heaven. Now, it's interesting, when we think of heaven, we think of a place in the sweet by and by when we die, right? All fly away, oh glory, all fly away, right? Now, the scriptures never, ever, ever, ever say that. Jesus, when he talked about heaven, never said, you will fly away to heaven someday. In fact, the scriptures regularly talk about heaven crashing into earth. Heaven coming to earth. In fact, Jesus, in that prayer that we said earlier, do you remember that prayer we said earlier? You might have been asleep or you were going through the motions because a lot of times we do that because we get to that part. It's like, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Right there. Right there you have kingdom theology. You didn't even know you've been praying that all these years since you were a little kid. But right there it says, let heaven happen on earth. That's what you're praying. Let heaven happen on earth. You're not praying, oh Lord, since earth is going to hell in a handbasket, please get me out of here as quick as possible. That's not what Jesus prayed. He said, let your will be done here. You see, that's what Jesus wants to see accomplished. God's will here. So the overlap between these two uh, places, heaven and earth, in the ancient world and even today, you get talking about these different things, tabernacles. So uh, the tabernacle that God had Moses and the children of, of, of uh, Israel build when they were out wandering around in the wilderness. They had this enormous tent structure. In fact, several years ago, uh, there's a replica that somebody built and they brought it to McCook. And me and the kids and some other families, we went and we walked through the tabernacle. It was amazing. It was incredible. And there was uh, the whole tribe of Levi. Their job was to roll up the tent the tabernacle and carry it around and then to set it back up and from the age of 20 to 50 that was their job and they picked up the tabernacle they set it up in fact the scriptures say if anybody else approaches the tabernacle anybody else tries to help out anybody else god's anger will burst forth out from the tabernacle and consume them in fire don't touch it Now, why would God say, don't touch it? 
Why would God say this is, remember the story where Moses sees a burning bush? And from the bush, there's a voice. And the voice says, take your sandals off. You're standing on holy ground. You're standing on holy ground. Now, it's kind of interesting. I, I've thought about that story many times because part of me wants a buffer between me and holiness. Do you want a buffer? Between, I'd like to keep my shoes on. Thank you. Because I don't know if I want to touch holy ground because I know I'm not very holy. But God says, take your shoes off. Stand in my presence, in my holiness. Stand on this place on planet Earth that I have made mine. That's in essence what's going on in that story. And the tabernacle is a picture of that. Everywhere the tabernacle is, that's where God is. In fact, it was such a powerful picture that we are told in Exodus and in Numbers that the glory of the Lord would dwell in the tabernacle, that there would be this presence, this literal physical presence. In places in Numbers, it says that Moses was called by God to come to the tabernacle and he brought 70 elders into the tabernacle with him. And then God stood there and spoke to them. The word is stood. God stood there and spoke to him. And then Miriam and Aaron, they get a little grumpy about what their brother's doing. This never happens in families, by the way. Brothers and sisters always get along, especially ones that are saved. That's why my kids are taking furious notes at this point. Miriam and Aaron, they grumble against Moses. And Moses hears about it. And he talks to God about it. And then God goes and he talks to Miriam and Aaron about it. God picked Moses' side in the argument. And God said to Miriam and Aaron, he said, I speak to Moses with my face. Wow. Wow. It was at that tabernacle. That's where God's presence was. Later on, the, the Israelites are told to create this temple, this glorious, amazing temple. In fact, David wants to create the temple, but God tells him, dude, you've killed way too many people. You've got too much blood on your hands. You can't be the guy to build my temple. I thought I was a man after your own heart. Well, you are, but you killed way too many folks. Your son's going to build it. So David spent the rest of his days getting and accumulating all this stuff that was going to be used in the temple. And then Solomon comes along. He grows up. He becomes king. He builds the temple. He builds this magnificent structure where inside everything is inlaid with gold. Everything is covered in gold inside. The Holy of Holies, it has two giant seraphim. And there are these two big uh, angel-looking like creatures with wings. And their wings span from one wall to the middle where they touch each other to the other wall. And down below them is the Ark of the Covenant. And on the Ark of the Covenant, in the Temple of Solomon, the presence of God would dwell. A cloud would be there, present. God's dwelling place on earth was the temple. We see that the Garden of Eden was his dwelling place. Adam and Eve, in the story we're going to look at just a little bit from now, heard God walking in the garden. 
This is where God dwelled. So we have all these different places where heaven and earth overlap in the Bible. But something's wrong, isn't it? Something's horribly wrong. If you've lived on earth for any amount of time, if you have experienced this whole spring forward thing, you know something's terribly wrong in this world. I blame the politicians for that one. There's tons of things wrong in this world. One of the things that's wrong in this world is that there is sin. There's sin in this world. Have you ever watched a child, a baby? You don't even have to teach them how to sin. They can figure it out on their own. It's amazing. This cute, little, adorable thing. You just, oh, you, they're so cute. They're like a baby angel. You want to eat them, right? And just, oh, so, just squish them and hug them. And then next thing you know, they're going, no. What? I'm blaming your mom. And then you go talk to her and she's like, oh, it's your fault. And that's where we get injustice in the world, right? Because it's like, no, I'm right. You're wrong. I, it's, in, it's unjust that you would say, I taught the child no. I say yes, dear, all the time. Couldn't have been me. No. And then if you have more kids, that little one starts to use other words like mine. Or you take them to nursery at church. Mine. These little sinners. I mean, it's unbelievable. <laughs> Our whole nursery is full of them. Just, I'm, why do you think it's hard to get people to help down there? <laughs> you thought it was the poopy diapers. It is not. It is not the poopy diapers. I'd rather deal with poopy diapers. There's a manual. There's a game plan with that. There's a YouTube video. You can figure that out. But with kids who go, mine, kids who sock each other in the face, kids who pinch, bite, kick. Before I had children, I had it all figured out. I, you could watch the parents. You'd be like, well, of course your kid's a moron. Of course your kid acts like that. Because you can watch the parents, right? And old people, some old people still do this. I have chilled out with that, though. Because I watch that and I go, oh, man, bless your heart. I've been there. That's a sinner right there. That is an uncontrollable, out-of-your-hands sinner right there. You just got to pray. And sometimes duck. I mean... There's sin in the world. There's injustice. There's rebellion. There's ugliness. I'm not talking like people ugliness. I'm talking like Yuma ugliness, you know. <laughs> that was a free one. There are things in this world that are dark, oppressive, slavery, abuse, hatred. They're ugly. They're horrible. There's idolatry. Now we come to the heaven side. God's presence is there. It's goodness, love, justice, beauty. How on earth are these two areas going to have anything to do with each other? See, and that's the whole problem. 
That's why God had all these rules and regulations with the tabernacle, with the temple. That's why there was sacrifices made. You see, the sacrifice wasn't necessarily to forgive the sins. It partly did that. But mainly what the sacrifice did was that it created a clean space. It created a space where kind of the sin was gone and God's presence could be there. And so we see this, and one of the questions, one of the things I wrestle with is, how did we get this way? Because if you read Genesis 1, it says it was good, it was good, it was good, it was good, it was good. Adam and Eve. Adam's like, whoa, it's in the Hebrew, whoa, this is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. I mean, there, there, was, there was just unity between the two. There was no animosity, there was no... There was no issues between the genders. They were naked and they were unashamed, says the scriptures. What happened? <laughs> How did we get to where we're at today, where there was like International Women's Day the other day? And women and men seemed to be at each other. How did we get to where we're at today in this world? Well, if you have your Bible, you can open it to Genesis 3. It didn't take long for things to go downhill. Remember, this is a theological textbook. It's trying to tell us how the world is the way it is. And Genesis 3 starts out this way. Remember, it's theology. It's not science. We're going to see that in a moment, why that's important. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, the serpent said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Uh, For a refresher, God had placed these two trees in the center of the garden, and one was the tree of life. That would have been a good tree to eat from. The other was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. In most children's books and adult coloring books nowadays, it's usually an apple, right? And who knows what it was. But Satan, the serpent, comes along and says, did God really say you can't eat from any tree? See what he's doing there? He twisted it a little bit. Did he say you can't eat from any tree? You ever dealt with one of these sinner kids from the nursery? They do that. They do that. They twist words. They all should be like little lawyers at that age. Because it's like they come out with a sin nature and a law degree. They can see the loophole and everything. They can figure out how you didn't say really to not do that. You just kind of said this. And you're like... Who are you? What is this? Did God really say you can't eat any fruit? Man, you're going to get hungry. He put you in here and there's all these trees and you can't eat any of them. The woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman. 
For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. Circle, highlight, underline that phrase. You will be like God. Knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. And right there, women get a bad rap. But if you keep reading, you read this. She also gave some to her husband who was with her. Maybe I should have said something. I don't know. And he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked. (gasps) This is where the TV show came from, Naked and Afraid, right here. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Huh. That's a bummer. I'm on page five in my Bible. It took all of five pages for us to mess it up. It took all of five pages? Seriously? Now, what's going on here? What's happening? Well, if we look at what's going on here a little bit, we'll see that there is the overlap of heaven and earth. We're in the Garden of Eden. Go ahead and move the next slide for me, Ben. We see Adam and Eve there. And we have this word, the serpent, which is the Hebrew word, nakash. Nakash. And translators, Bible nerd people, they sit around and they argue, okay, what does this mean? What is this word doing? Because didn't you find it interesting that, number one, a serpent is talking? Like, I hate snakes. And if they could talk, I would, man, that'd be horrible. Are you kidding me? It's like Slytherin from Harry Potter. It'd just be miserable that snakes could only, I mean, think of what they could say to me as I'm sleeping, right? Just, we're coming to get you. You know, I mean, just be miserable. I'd hate that. Maybe they could warn me. I don't know. But I don't think I'd like talking snakes. It's interesting. Did you notice that Eve isn't freaked out by the talking snake? So Bible scholars, Bible nerd people, they look at this and they go, so she's not surprised by the talking snake. So does every, all the creatures talk? You'll actually have some Bible people that that's the way they argue. All the creatures could talk. Now, those were influenced by five-year-olds because all five-year-olds want all the animals to talk. There's also some, also some other possibilities. If we look at this word, nakash, and possible translations for it, if it's used as a noun, it can be translated as serpent. And so that's what my text, the NIV, and most of your texts have decided to do with it, the serpent. And part of it is they go to the New Testament and there John says the serpent, the Satan, he equates the serpent, the Satan, he uses that word later in the New Testament. Now, if we keep looking at other possibilities, if it's used as a verb, which it can, okay, that's what's so weird about other languages. But think about it. We have words like this too. We have the word run and run can be used as a noun or a verb. I can go for a run. I'm using it as a verb. It is? 
Okay. So if I run for office, that's a... There we go. Now imagine trying to study Hebrew, which is different direction with different letters. And by the way, there's 22 possible meanings for the word run based on context. So it's not weird to go, Nakesh could mean more than one thing here. And it's determined by context what it means. Now, if it's used as a noun here, and it could be functioning as a noun, then the translation is serpent. If it's being used as a verb, then it means to divine, to divine something like divination. And if it's being used that way, then it's like he's the diviner. Okay? Now, it could also be used as an adjective, and that means shining, like bronze. And so if it's being used that way, then Nakash means the shining one, like the shining thing. But since it's a, since it's a, since it's a person, since it's an entity, a personal entity, we call it a one, right? A personal thing, the shining one. Now, what we know about from the rest of scriptures is that Satan, who most scholars, all scholars agree, this is Satan in the garden. Satan elsewhere in the book of Ezekiel and the rest of the Old Testament, he's described as a seraph. And a seraph is a serpent-like throne guardian. We actually have pictures of these. I didn't bother to go on Google and find one. You can Google it and you can see a seraph. Ancient Egyptians placed this on the Pharaoh's throne. Most ancient peoples had seraphs, and these were throne guardians. And the seraphs were fire spitters. And what they meant was that, but that, by that was that they were poisonous. And so, like, they were cobra-like creatures with wings. And so, Satan is a serpentine-like creature. You might be surprised, because you've probably seen the cartoons where he has little horns and a red outfit, a pitchfork, and a long tail. But in the scriptures, he's described as a serpent-like creature. He's also described as shining. And so I think it's probably wise to see that all of these is in play. I think there's some, I, I think there's a play on words going on here. And one thing that's interesting is one thing we know about this creature is it's not just an ordinary run-of-the-mill snake. It can talk, and Eve doesn't freak out. Now he talks to her, and he says, and I told you to circle, highlight, underline what he told her. You will be like God. You see, most of the time in church nowadays, churches get all crazy and now all bent out of shape about morality. Oh, you shouldn't do that. You shouldn't do that. You should act like this. You should be this way. You shouldn't do these things. But the interesting thing is, the real issue, where all this began, the real issue, back to the garden, is it wrong to eat fruit? It was wrong to eat the fruit that God told you not to. And the reason they wanted to eat it was they wanted to be, what did the Bible say? Like God. Martin Luther understood this. How many Lutherans here? Any Lutherans here? Anyone willing to admit that they were a Lutheran ever? Um, in his larger catechism, you know that thing that they indoctrinate you to be a good Lutheran? 
he talked about the Ten Commandments. And he said that the first commandment, or excuse me, the second commandment, is that you shall not make any idols. And Luther said the reason that's the second commandment, the reason it's at the front of the list, is in order to break any of the other lists, you have to break that first one. In order to do any of the others, you have to be an idolater first. In order to cover your, wife, uh, your neighbor's wife, you have to commit adultery, idolatry. In order to steal, you have to be an idolater. Now, what does he mean by that? He means that you value something more than God. That's what he means. If you value anything more than God, you are an idolater. Anything. Adam and Eve, what did they value more than God? They valued the opportunity to be like him more than him. They valued the opportunity to listen to Nakash and to be like God. And so they did. They took the opportunity. Now, it's interesting. I think what's going on here is that we failed in our vocation. Our vocation was to be image bearers of God, to take God's influence his justice, his love, his mercy, his compassion, his presence. We were to take that throughout the world. And what do we do instead? What do Adam and Eve do instead? (laughs) We can figure it out ourselves. Let's be like you. Let's do this on our own terms. And the rest of this book describes the consequences, describes the battle, describes the solution. We're not getting that to to there today. But it describes what happened. You see, when we turn and worship other gods, we are enslaved by them. When we in turn and worship other gods, we are enslaved by them. Some of you may not believe me. If you worship money, you're enslaved by it. Every decision you make in your work and how you spend it and what you do with it will be influenced by your love of money. If you value sex more than God, then you're willing to risk all sorts of things for just brief moments of pleasure because you value that more than God. If you value power more than God, then you will not stop at anything to gain power. On and on and on it goes. Now, I don't want this just to be a lecture. I want this to be a sermon at some point. How do we diagnose if we have an idol? How do we diagnose if we are an idolater? Well, Tim Keller, he has a helpful idea. And he said this, what does your mind wander to when you have free time? What does your mind wander to when you have free time? When you just space out and daydream, what do you go and think about? Where do you live? What do you imagine? What do you dream? What do you desire? What do you hope for? 
Now, a daydream here and there about being the wealthiest person in the world doesn't mean that you are greedy. But if your mind always turns to, how can I make more? How can I do this? How can I get that? How can I make that possible? You might be greedy. And the scriptures say this, greed is idolatry. So as you listen to this and realize that your problem is not your morality, your, that's a symptom. Your problem, my problem, is that we worship the wrong thing. We ascribe worship and glory and honor to the wrong thing. And I think this week you need to spend some time praying about this, wrestling with this. Some of you, you've already got it figured out. You're already convicted and you already know this is my idol. But you need to spend some time thinking about that. What is the most important thing to me? Holy Spirit, help us to figure that out. Speak into our hearts, into our minds, into our lives. Help us know that we don't value you like we should. Point out to us if it's our identity and who we are. Point out to us if it's our health and how we feel. Point out to us if it's our position in town. Point out to us if it's a relationship. Point out to us if it's family or child. Point out to us whatever those things might be that are idols that we think are more important than you. And then, Lord, our prayer would be this, that you would restore us to yourself. That we would cease being idolaters and worship the one true God. Holy Spirit, make it so. Now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. May you. May you just fall in love with Christ, with the Heavenly Father, with the Holy Spirit like never before. Amen.